Hello and welcome to Full Contact Nerd, where we talk about fiction and storytelling in all its forms. From the weird to the fantastic, horror, sci-fi, fantasy, thrillers, mysteries, anything you can ask for, we have it. I'm Chris Alvarez and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Veronica Roth, author of Chosen Ones, to be published by John Joseph Adams Books, and actually I think, so April 7th. So I'm sure you have, you always have many writing ideas. How did um, this particular idea for this book rise above the rest? Well, I kind of chewed on it for a while. I looked back at my kind of records recently and discovered I'd been thinking about it since like the middle of 2017. Um, So I think where the curiosity that sparked the idea came from is just from having written a kind of chosen one story with the divergent books, which were my uh, first series. So, you know, the chosen one trope is like everywhere in science fiction and fantasy, just basic, the basic structure being, someone who is set apart usually by destiny in order to fulfill some great purpose like saving the world Mm -hmm. um, and a a few other things, you know, sort of accompanying it. But where my curiosity was, was just about how characters who take on such a burden and usually endure some kind of trauma, really, Mm -hmm. um, how they react psychologically and what that might be like, you know, if you took it very seriously. Because some of our big Chosen One series, you know, like even Harry Potter or um, Dune, they do continue after the main kind of struggle is over. Mm -hmm. But none of them are primarily concerned with the psychology of that character, um, because that's just not what they're about. But I was curious about what that might be like. So that's where the idea came from and kind of why it took hold, Mm -hmm. I think. So tell me about the book, then uh, talk about the protagonist, the setting, and, and all those kinds of things. Yeah, so uh, Chosen Ones is about a group of five people who defeated a Dark Lord kind of figure known as the Dark One. When they were teenagers, they were recruited by kind of a government, a clandestine government agency to do this. Mm-hmm. And now uh, in the book, in the present day, it's 10 years later, and they're still dealing with the repercussions of having done this. Um, they're the most famous people on earth and they have, you know, PTSD. Um, there's also some lingering problems in the world around them as a result of um, the catastrophic events that they dealt with 10 years before. So that's yeah. sort of the premise of the book. And then the main character is Sloan um, and she uh, kind of relates to her fame in a very antagonistic way. Um, and has a lot of particular struggles because she, along with one of the others, was kidnapped by the Dark One and spent kind of a harrowing 24 hours with him. And so she's got a very particular um, set of issues that she's trying to deal with and also keep hidden. Um, And then obviously when kind of evil surges back to the surface again, she has to confront those issues in a more intense way than she did before. Okay. So is it sort of like um, a contemporary urban setting that people would recognize with a layer of this magic uh, that came in on it? Yeah. So um, it's set in Chicago, which is where I live. Mm -hmm. And there are some kind of parallel universe elements to it. I had to develop an alternate history for it. And the concept is that um, at a certain point in the past, like magic which is just what we call a force that we don't really understand spreads through the earth um, and becomes usable. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the, yeah. So it's magic, but um, 
it's sort of like straddling this line between science fiction and fantasy, I would say. Okay. Um, so I know with a work like this, it doesn't necessarily require research, but did you do any research? You know, it's, you live in Chicago, it's set in Chicago. Did you do any research for setting or, or even like the PTSD that you talk about? Did you do any sort of, um, yeah, research into stuff? You know, I did. And partly, I mean, most of it was related to what I referred to earlier with the alternate history. So, um, in order to develop an alternate history, you kind of need to know what our history is naturally, which I do in a very general, I took, you know, a couple of classes kind of sense, but I don't um, know the particulars. And I had decided on a point of divergence that was around 1969. Um, so in place of the space race in this alternate universe, there is a race to get to the depths of the ocean because the space race wasn't really about getting to the moon. It was about the development of um, ballistic missile technology and, um, and a few other kind of like military advancements, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so I, I once I developed that theory, then, you know, if our universe split with another one in 1969 and then developed magic, it would affect the development of modern computing and um, design and fashion and all kinds of like the ripple effects are pretty intense. So mm-hmm. um, I also interspersed documents throughout the text that are like, like declassified government documents and weird product reviews and excerpts from textbooks and all kinds of things. And each of them required research too, because, you know, writing in a different voice for each document, you have to know what, what they sound like and how they differ from each other. So mm-hmm. I read like a lot of MK ultra documents, which is <laughs> our government experiments with L- LSD um, mm-hmm. in like the seven sixties and seventies, I think. Anyway, so there was a lot of that and a lot of architecture stuff with Chicago because, like, I live here, but I don't know when everything was built. And, um, yeah, it was the most research-intensive book that I've written so far. Hmm. Did you did you want a project that required that much, much research, or did it just kind of, as you were writing, you realized, whoa, I need to look deeper? Yeah, it happened. It just happened. Hmm. Um, I'm not someone who dislikes research, but I don't crave it. Mm-hmm. particularly i i don't usually do more research than the book requires um if anything i i need a little bit of a nudge to do more <laughs> which fortunately my editor was happy to oblige <laughs> so um his questions provoked a lot of like further follow-up and a little more depth in the book which was sorely needed hmm. was there as you did your research was there anything you came across that kind of surprised you and maybe you know changed the direction of the book in any way or Um, yeah, I mean, it became way more kind of government conspiracy focused. (laughs) Um, not that it, it is, you know, too much of that, but it just hadn't really been that way in early drafts of the book. And I also decided to make it a lot more grounded. So originally kind of the alternate universe felt a lot more like a fantasy world, Mm -hmm. but in this version of the book, it feels far more realistic. And you'd think that developing an entirely new world like a fantasy world would maybe require more of that kind of work but it uh, it weirdly requires less because you don't have to be as accurate um, you have to have a good sense of how things work but you don't have to know how they actually happened and so um, the further I went in that direction the more the more I had to dig into research huh. interesting so um what are some of the uh, the things like 
other books, music, TV that maybe inspired the aesthetics of this book or the feel of it? Ooh, the aesthetics. Oh, that's tough. <laughs> um, <laughs> because I, I think it was more my surroundings that did it because Chicago has a lot of Art Deco and Art Nouveau influences, hmm. um, and especially like just in a lot of the most beautiful or um, most well-known buildings that are here. And I drew a lot of inspiration from, from those in particular for the aesthetics, um, not just in buildings, but in like the fashion, mostly because my theory of this, this universe is that in order to figure out how they would interact with magic, they would look to like past examples of it. So, um, they get very campy with like wizard hats and robes and <laughs> on, on the one end and then like weird kind of like hippie stuff on the other end, just like any kind of like, uh, groundwork that we have for like what being magical might look like. They kind of lean into it in a way that's supposed to be playful. Um, and so everything's kind of elaborate and Baroque instead of modern and all modernist structures are gone. Um, so, <laughs> I think that's more where the aesthetic kind of came in. Uh, and I'm not sure I really leaned on anything fictional in order to develop it. Mm -hmm. um, kind of went more with what was already there and just exaggerated it. Okay. So in general, what sort of um, like books or, you know, any kind of media that inspires your writing just gets your, your mind going and that sort of thing? Well, I read a lot of science fiction and fantasy, and um, and so that is, I mean, that's always going to be a point of inspiration. I'm not sure what I was reading at the time that I uh, wrote this. I think I was actually reading something completely different. Um, it was, like, last January. Yeah. I was reading, like, Lincoln and the Bardo by George Saunders at this time, so it had nothing to do with this book. But um, I think what inspired it in particular, just, like, the kind of chosen ones stories of my youth, which were um, Dune by Frank Herbert and then Harry Potter, because I was exactly the right age for Harry Potter hmm. when it came to the States. Um, and then Lord of the Rings was, like, a big deal for my dad and he had us listen to it on a car trip when i was a kid so um i think that's always been an influence for me and then the animorphs series i don't know if anyone else read this series when they were young um but it's like an alien invasion story with five kind of preteen chosen ones and that was a huge influence and then there's stuff like buffy and the matrix so just all of those stories it kind of took hold in me and i um i drew on them to develop like the kind of uh, I like distilled them to their basic elements to use for the backstory of this, the 10 years before defeat of the dark one. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I'm speaking with Veronica Roth, author of the new novel chosen ones. You can find her at Veronica Roth books.com. If you like this podcast, please rate it on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. Please follow like and comment on my website, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. You can also go to YouTube under Chris Alvarez, under Instagram at Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi, and under Twitter and Facebook at Chris Alvarez FCN. If you like military history, please check out my podcast, Military History Inside Out, also located at warscholar.org. If you like outer space exploration and commercialization, please check out my podcast, Spacewalks Money Talks, also at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. Now back to the podcast. 
So it's, so you prefer, it sounds like you prefer even the stories you were familiar with, except maybe Lord of the Rings, all have young protagonists. Um, yeah. Well, I, I think coming from having written for younger audiences before, I mean, my previous books were YA. So um, I think those stories interest me. And also they formed kind of the basis for the my interest in this, because my interest is in the burdens we put on young people and how that would affect them realistically moving forward and whether they would be able to form healthy relationships or, you know, get a job if you haven't gone to college and you're not trained for anything other than fighting evil, you know, like how do we, how does that impact people? So I think um, that kind of is why I gravitated toward those like young person chosen, chosen stories. Um, mm. Cause that's really where the narrower part of my interest is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And actually just as an aside, just historically, I mean, wars are usually fought by young people. They're the ones who carry the burdens. Um, yeah. As they get mm -hmm. older, um, at least the mental burdens and that sort of thing. Yeah. Would you say if this book had a soundtrack, would you say, what would you say the music that went with it might be? Ooh. <laughs> So I have a playlist. So I listen to music when I write. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know if that would be the soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> there is a difference, yeah. 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 Oh man, it would be it would be great to get kind of a melding of um, more classical stuff with more modern stuff, like just kind of a mashed together um, soundtrack would be interesting. I think is. It's not, it's not a story that like a lot of fantasy kind of feels a little historical, you know? Mm. Um, yeah. and I don't think this is one of those. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I can't think of like a good example of it. All my, I'm looking at my playlist right now to see if I can, <laughs> um, draw any inspiration there. And it's just not, it's like the, this playlist is bananas. Like it's ev <laughs> every kind of music, um, just like mashed together. So would you who say, knows? would you say it's more mellow or more like, um, more like energetic kind of feel more energetic. I, uh, a lot of the book is a little bit cheeky. Um, and so there's a lot of kind of like a lot of pop on there, I think as a result, because the character of Sloan is so much like, um, a kind of one of those girls is like too cool for her stuff, <laughs> but, but she's very much not too cool for anything. Um, in actuality, as the people around her repeatedly point out. So I think the playlist kind of reflects that. And then, of course, because I write a lot of action scenes, that's one of my favorite types of scene to write. Mm -hmm. um, I have kind of like your more epic sounding pieces that are usually like in trailers, you know? Oh, okay. Okay. Because mm -hmm. I was, you know, part of me is thinking of, you know, Blade and that, that uh, vampire club, you know, that pounding feel versus... Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that popped in my head. Maybe I, I listened to it recently. Mm-hmm. Is there... When you write or when you're completing your work, working on a draft or the final version, is there anything out of the ordinary you do um, to get your work done? I think one thing is that um, I love revision. I hate writing rough drafts, but like anyone, I still get defensive when I get um, an editorial letter, at least at first. And so one thing that I have found keeps me from having to like put it aside for long periods of time, because usually I don't have 
you know, a whole hell of a lot of time um, to work on stuff is that I will rewrite the editorial letter in my own words. And I find that to be really helpful because it's, it's, I mean, I really love and respect my editor. So it's not about that, but it's just that when I read something that sounds like me, it feels like I'm alone with the draft and I get to do um, whatever I want with it and I can take risks and I'm not accountable to anyone. And so I will turn his editorial letter into mine and um, I find that to be really helpful. It's something I figured out like three books into my writing career, and um, I've done it ever since then. I was just going to say that's that's a fascinating uh, approach. I hadn't heard of that before. Well, I, I don't think everyone is quite as sensitive <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to the editorial letter as I am, which is funny because I really love notes. Like I... I find them to be really the only way of improving as a writer, just to have to see your draft through someone else's eyes. But I also need to feel completely alone when I'm working on, on writing. So when you do that, what if you come across a comment that maybe you don't agree with or don't understand? Do you still try to write it in there? You know, so how do you approach that, that sort of well, if I don't understand it, then I'll have to reach out to him, to them and ask, mm-hmm. what what do you mean by this? If I don't agree with it, what I usually do is either decide not to take the note and I make a note of why why I'm not doing it, or I look at the deeper reason for it. Mm-hmm. So if you know, if the note is like a diagnosis, what is the original problem? Mm-hmm. Um and like how how else might I treat that problem <laughs> or diagnose that problem? Yeah, so you know, sometimes you'll get a note that's like, oh, the pacing here is slow or 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 whatever. And it's like, well, is the pacing slow or is this scene tripping you up? Are you more fascinated by this other direction? Is it distracting? You know, there's there's all kinds of reasons why someone might say something mm-hmm. is wrong with the draft. And so I try to at least address that. And then when I rewrite the editorial letter, I write that part instead, like what what the problem is or what I intend to do to fix it. Hmm. OK. All right. Um, how has your approach to writing changed over time? Well, I used to just be wild and free about it, <laughs> when, you know, back when I, no one was paying me and I didn't know what the future would hold. I didn't plan anything. And I, I, I think I had a better access to like my id a little bit, hmm. which, you know, you, you win, you win some things and you lose some other things, uh, as you develop. But, um, now I plan things out a lot more. I am a lot more cognizant of just like what kinds of problems do come up when you write a series in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, now that this, this will be the third series that I've written. Although, I mean, do we call a duology a series? I'm not sure. Um, mm. yeah. but anyway, uh, <laughs> but mostly the planning I think is the biggest part. I never used to outline and now I outline in with like a lot of detail and I find that to be really helpful with not getting stuck. Because at least, I mean, your outlines don't always pan out and you have to think on your feet. But if you have a general plan of the shape of a book and the kinds and you think things through a little bit more in advance, then the writing process becomes a little smoother. At least that's been my experience. Hmm. Did you successfully get an agent with your first the first book you pushed you, you put out or did you have some rejections early on? 
I did not get an agent with the first book. Uh, I got 35 rejections for that manuscript, which will never see the light of day as it is <laughs> truly terrible. <laughs> I have read it since then. It was bad. But it was kind of the book I used to figure out how to write a whole book, you know, like I can finish it. Because up until that point, I'd written only fragments. They were always like supposed to be novels and I just didn't kind of follow through. But I was pretty young, so it's fine. Hmm. Um, and then the the second book, which is the book that which was Divergent, my first book, mm-hmm. um, was the one that I got an agent with. And she is the agent, the only agent who gave me feedback when she rejected my first book. And she said, I think you're a good writer, but this story doesn't work. So if you could send me what you do next, then, you know, we could talk about whether that one works. Mm-hmm. And that's what ended up happening. She was the first person I sent um, my next project to. So did you, so after the first one was rejected, did you take some time before starting the second, you know, Divergent? Or did you just immediately jump on a new, on a new project? No, I, I jumped on a new one immediately. I think that was kind of my way of distracting myself. Cause you know, I didn't get like 35 rejections in one night, right. although that would have been pretty <laughs> epic. Um, I got them over a period of like six months. So while I was, uh, waiting for someone to be interested in the like first book I finished, I started writing the second one. And I think that's a pretty good strategy. Um, provided you kind of know what you need to work on. Um, which I kind of did at that point because I was also in, I was in college at that point. So mm-hmm. I was in a writing program and I was getting consistent feedback on other work that I was doing. So have you done, um, other non-writing work that that's influenced, um, how or what you write? And I know you, you know, you started, you got, had your success in college, but maybe you had some kind of, um, jobs or something. I had, uh, two jobs <laughs> before <laughs> that point. One of them was I was a research assistant for a, uh, religious studies professor who was writing a book about, of essays about Martin Luther. So I had to check her grammar and punctuation for that. And then I used that experience to apply for an internship at a publisher where I was um, what they called a proofreading intern, which means basically I was a copy editor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had that for a, like a freelance job for like a month. And then the book happened. And so I was like, all right, I guess that's my last copy editing project. So, I mean, I have sort of like when I, when I go talk to uh, high schoolers, which I do semi-regularly, I always make sure to tell them that my story is not an underdog story. Like, I know we love an underdog story, but that's just not, <laughs> that's not my experience. I had a kind of charmed beginning to my career, which is great. Yeah. Huh. yeah. Okay. So you did mention, uh, so we talked about the editorial process a bit. For this, for Chosen Ones, um, were there parts of the book uh, that you had to take out? that maybe you uh, didn't want to, or maybe you were happy to, you know, chuck parts out? I am very liberal with, you know, the knife or the scissors or whatever we call it, but uh, not with this project. I, with this one, um, the only thing I got rid of was my original proposal. So the book, uh, when I submitted it, because I have a track record in publishing, Mm -hmm. um, I could submit it on proposal. So with the first 50 pages and after uh, talking to my editor about those 50 pages, I was like, all right, I need to start over. So I just got rid of them. That was the only thing I really cut. Throughout the editorial process, what we did, or what I did is I added more and more and more based on the questions that he had about the universe, because that was a lot of his feedback was like, well, 
like he's the one who um, asked me to think about technology and computers. Like, how would this have affected, you know, the development of computers? And I was like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> like I have to learn about how the history of computers now, you know, and I'm just like on YouTube watching videos about the history of modern computing. <laughs> anyway, um, okay. So uh, I, yeah, I don't think I have like any deleted scenes. I have no deleted material. I just kept adding um, as I went. And that has happened to me before where I write kind of short, mm -hmm. uh, really tight and short drafts that don't have a whole lot of detail mm -hmm. and every round of, revision that I do, I add more and more. Do you think, uh, do you end up adding more, um, more narrative or, or more, um, is it more development of the characters, you know, the, the things they're thinking and going through? It is mostly, I mean, it kind of has to involve plot a little bit, but I think for the most part, the purpose of what I add is to fully develop the world and yes, to reveal character um, or explore character a little bit more. Usually the basic structure of the plot is what um, kind of comes to me first. And the other things I kind of, every, I mean, every, uh, everything you develop about a world or a character requires you to make a series of decisions that have to be internally consistent with each other. <laughs> and that is a part that I kind of avoid in rough drafts. I just avoid making decisions because I don't want to nail myself into any particular corner. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and, which is a really like silly tendency, but that's just the way it is hmm. for me. So okay. I then basically have to go back through and start making choices, which then limits the amount of choices that you can make, uh, you know, after that point. Mm -hmm. So um, it's all about kind of forcing myself to actually land on one side of an issue or another. I'm speaking with Veronica Roth, author of the new novel Chosen Ones. You can find her at veronicarothbooks.com. If you like this podcast, please rate it on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. Please follow, like, and comment on my website, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. You can also go to YouTube under Chris Alvarez under Instagram at Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi, and under Twitter and Facebook at Chris Alvarez FCN. If you like military history, please check out my podcast, Military History Inside Out, also located at warscholar.org. If you like outer space exploration and commercialization, please check out my podcast, Spacewalks Money Talks, also at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. Now back to the podcast. And since you say you do have pretty um, detailed outlines, did any of the characters in the book end up surprising you? Um, yeah, I mean, one of the characters I had to basically cut out of the book because she wasn't serving an important function. Mm. And that, I mean, actually doing it was the confirmation that it was the right decision because if you can just take a character out of a draft without it impacting anything, then that character shouldn't be in that draft. So I had to do that. That was kind of a surprise. But also, I didn't realize I wasn't developing the antagonist well enough in my outline um, until I was about three quarters of the way through the book, and I had to start exploring his psyche a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And so then I had to like put it on pause for a couple of days and had a couple epic brainstorm sessions with some people about um, kind of what I had been thinking and why it wasn't working and how I needed to, you know, rethink his entire backstory and 
then go back through the rest of the draft and fix all of that. And I mean, it was like a crisis mm. in the middle of the book. Mm. How did you, what gave you the feeling that the character needed more development? Did it, did something hit you or did you come to a point in the plot that it seemed to need more? Or? So it's kind of a problem I've had before in other books that I, for some reason, even though I really love a good antagonist, I struggle to develop them. And it's not so much that I don't understand them as I don't find a way to structure the plot in such a way that the main character can encounter the, the bad guy, as it were, mm-hmm. and learn something meaningful about them. So in my first series, that was one of my one of the problems I had with it was that I had these like villain figures who are like snidely whiplash, you know, like twirling their little mustaches. <laughs> and I was like, this isn't good. You know, this is not, um, this is something that I really need to work on. And so since then, that's been an area of focus for me. And that's what happened. I started writing these climactic scenes between my heroine and this antagonist. And I was like, he seems like a Disney villain and that's not good. So, um, I just knew I needed to refine him a little bit and make sure that um, he didn't seem that he seemed understandable, even if, you know, you don't condone the things that an antagonist does most of the time, but you should still at least find them interesting and find them comprehensible. Mm -hmm. So apart from uh, the issue of uh, PTSD, are there, and you don't have to go into detail about this, but does the book also address any other social concerns or anything? I mean, I, th- I think it does just kind of inherently like to the story and to the characters, like um, one of the other chosen ones of the, of the five is um, was addicted to drugs. And so there's some of that. And then mm-hmm. one of the other ones is black and he is like the main chosen one. And so of course, being the most famous person on earth, he encounters some racism as one would um, in the world that we live in. Okay. So there's that. Um, and I think the, but more, more generally the magic system is based on, I mean, it has, one component that's like sound based. So it's almost, it's measurable and it's concrete. Like the magic is provoked by sound, but there's another component to it, which is a little bit deeper, which has to do with desire. And the main character is struggling with whether she wants anything in particular, because, you know, like you said, she's got PTSD and also she's depressed. And, um, but I think one of the significant parts of, that what made that interesting to me is that the magic system being focused on desire, specifically a desire for impossible things to happen. So, you know, it's not just like, I want a sandwich. It's like, I want this thing that doesn't exist. Like I want to light a fire with my fingers, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And my theory is that women would be particularly adept at this magic system because the world makes many things impossible for us to have all of them at once. Mm. And, So being a woman in the world is wanting impossible things. Um, You want to have it all. You want to have career advancement and you want to have a child, like God forbid. Um, Mm -hmm. Anyway, so that was a significant part of the book for me. It's not, um, I mean, the hope, of course, is that it's not hitting you over the head with it. Like, I don't write anything intending to be heavy handed, but um, it's certainly present in, in the feeling of the book. 
Okay. How many words is the book? Uh, I think it's like 130,000 words. Okay. okay. A bit of a whimsical question here. Uh, when you were young, um, was there any power technology um, or a fictional setting that you yearned for? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I was 11 years old and I read Harry Potter and all I wanted was for Hogwarts to exist. <laughs> um, I also always wanted to fly. Um, I was also really into the X-Men, you know, as a child. Mm -hmm. So any mutant power I wanted. Yeah, I mean, I wanted a lot of things, is what I'm telling you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, Which house in Harry Potter were you? Oh, I'm a Hufflepuff. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So we did talk about finishing the book. You mentioned this crisis you had with the characters. Did you have any other difficulties um, finishing the book or getting it published, or was it a smooth otherwise smooth process it wasn't difficult to kind of get an editor for it get a publisher for it just because i think um i mean i I like the idea a lot but i also know that i have a good publishing history so um that kind of helps when you've been established in a particular industry um so there was that but as far as like on the creative side i mean there was the the great villain crisis of 2019 yes um but Um, I found that the book was just generally hard to get to get it out, um, which is an odd thing for something that I'm so proud of now mm-hmm. and appreciate so much now. But I think some books are like that, especially when you're um, on the precipice of growth. Mm-hmm. I think it it can be it can feel like pulling teeth a little bit. Um, I felt like I no longer knew how to do this job that I've been doing for 10 years. And my last book before this was a breeze to write. So it was it could not have been more opposite. But the results of that work were um, just so much better than anything I had written before. So every day that I sat down to write was a hard day. But at the end of the day, I would feel pretty good about where I was. And, um, yeah, the general experience of writing it was just like a real challenge for some reason. Is there any pressure, added pressure, considering your early, you know, this success you had early on and, you know, with the, you know, the movies and, um, do you, do you feel a pressure to like meet that expectation or do you just kind of like take it as it comes? Um, I do feel that pressure. Yeah. I think I'd have to kind of be a robot not to feel it, um, Mm. I I try not to think about it because there's really no way to guarantee that kind of success. I mean, it wasn't just it, it was just an extraordinary situation as not just for me personally, but in the book industry in general. That was during the kind of rise of YA movie adaptations. Um, we'd had a couple successful ones and everyone was hungry for the next one. And I happened to be there at that time. Um, and that was pretty wonderful for my books and for my career, but Mm -hmm. it's not, I mean, it's not going to happen again. Like YA had this big surge and it's done surging and now it's going to go back to a normal level of, of being. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, I try to focus on what I can control, which is the, the quality of work that I'm doing and, and how hard I work at it. And, Every time I find myself feeling that pressure, I think I, I try to refocus on what's important and what's within my grasp. Mm-hmm. I've always wondered about this, and this isn't necessarily a question about your your approach. But do you think do you feel like authors write um, a book in a way to make it 
more easily adaptable to the the movie screen or to you know to miniseries or something like that or I feel like I mean maybe I I don't think I have I think actually what I've done is dig deeper into the ideas I have and then made them less adaptable over time, (laughs) which is not on purpose. It's just, I think, a feature of getting older and growing in your work. But um, it is a a little bit odd when you've had your work adapted, you suddenly know what was difficult for them to film or what they had to change because it wasn't feasible. And it does live in the back of your mind like, oh, well, they would never be able to do that, you know, and you just either you change your work based on that knowledge or you accept that if it did get adapted, that part wouldn't make it. And that's kind of the side of that uh, spectrum that I've landed on. I just, you know, it would be great if any of my work was adapted into film again, Mm -hmm. Um, but it will change no matter what. And so I have to write what's good for the book, I guess. Um, that's way more important to me. Yeah, the impression I get is that you do love the art of writing. Um, I do, yeah. Um, it's the only thing I've ever loved quite this much. <laughs> okay, it's, so it's not... I, I guess everyone I've talked to has said they love writing, otherwise they wouldn't keep doing it. Um, it's not like the kind of job that's that you do if you don't love it, right? You basically are alone for an entire year with your own thoughts, which is kind of scary um (laughs) so i would say i would say like if people pursue it because they like the idea of having written a book they're probably not going to make it because you have to be okay with the day in day out like toil of it Mm -hmm. um what's your next writing project well there is a sequel to chosen ones so i'll be working on that pretty Mm -hmm. soon once i kind of take a break and i do write short fiction pretty regularly so there will be some of that as well Mm -hmm. and is that so do you stick primarily to um like fantasy type subjects or i do yeah i mean i kind of lean a little more sci-fi in my uh, approach but in any case not realistic uh fiction for me not really one day if i came up with a good idea for it i wouldn't be opposed to it but it just hasn't happened yet Mm -hmm. so where can people find you online well, my website is veronicarothbooks.com, and I'm also active on Instagram at vrothbooks. Vrothbooks? Yes. Okay. And I'll just, uh, I'll spell that for people, just in case someone... Thanks. Um, so, V-E-R-O-N-I-C-A-R-O-T-H, veronicarothbooks.com, right? That's right. Okay. Well, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any... Uh, last thoughts or words uh no i think we're good okay well i appreciate you talking to me yeah thanks so much thank you for listening if you like this podcast full contact nerd please subscribe please also rate full contact nerd and review it if you can i have many more options to nerd out on sci-fi fantasy and horror you can check out my website chrisalvarez.com that's chris without an h I have 20 mini-blogs on the site covering sci-fi, fantasy, horror, gaming, writing, mysteries, folklore, mythology, and many more topics. You can find my video playlists and my original videos on YouTube under Chris Alvarez. I cover sci-fi short films and games, fantasy fiction, horror short films and games, 
video and board game design, and more. You can get interesting news on fiction and fiction studies on my Twitter page, Chris Alvarez FCN. You can find cosplay and convention photos on my Instagram page, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi. You can sign up for my newsletter on new books on my websites, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. Thank you for listening, and keep imagining the past, the present, and the future.